If you have your Bible, go ahead and turn with me tonight once more to the seventh chapter of Revelation. I want to continue on in our, our study of this seventh chapter, really in our overall study of the book. In chapter seven, this is a passage that we began looking at last week in our time together. And really, this seventh chapter is an interlude or an intermission between the sixth and seventh sealed judgments which are described there, chapter 6, and then on into chapter 8. Now, I gave you a chart um, some weeks back, really illustrating how the book of Revelation progresses. We'll pause for an interlude or an intermission. Uh, It will then progress some more and then pause for another intermission. And these intermissions are called the interludes of the book. And there are also alternating scenes between heaven and earth in understanding the interludes and the alternating pattern. This will help you follow really the sequence of events that are being described throughout uh, the book. Now, you know that there are three series of judgments. You've got the sealed judgments, and those are mentioned beginning with chapter 6. The seventh seal and the breaking of the seventh seal of that seven-sealed scroll leads to the seven trumpet judgments, and those are described in chapters 8 and 9, and then that is followed up by the seven bowl judgments in chapter 16. And so these follow one another in sequence, and they keep moving the action of the book toward the culmination of the kingdom of Jesus, and you might think of these as sort of forming the chronological backbone of the book. But in between those judgments, and in particular between the sixth and seventh seal, between the sixth and seventh trumpet, you find some intermissions, interludes, that provide you with some real key information about key events. And there's a break in the action, and there's some details that are being filled in. And sometimes uh, John goes back. He's shown something in the past. He's describing something as it pertains to the overall redemptive plan of God. Sometimes it runs ahead of the action to provide some information. But really, you need to think of this seventh chapter as a parenthetical section between the sixth and seventh seals. And ultimately, it answers the question... There at the end of chapter 6, who can stand? The great day of the Lamb's wrath has come, and and ultimately, who can stand? And so chapter 7 then introduces two groups of people who will survive the judgments unleashed on the world during the tribulation. And the first group, they're described in the first eight verses of chapter 7, known as the 144,000 sealed of Israel from every tribe of Israel. And then the second, uh, really verse 9 through the end of chapter 7, the second group is a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, every tribe, every language represented. And so this chapter has been really the subject of a lot of debate, discussion. There's a lot of disagreement among Bible teachers and scholars, especially as it relates to the identity of this first group Uh, the 144,000 who are described. Now, there have been a lot of fanciful interpretations of this. Uh, A lot of cult movements have picked up on this, and they've tried to apply this to them, you know, uh, Jehovah Witnesses being one of those. Uh, Seventh-day Adventism says that these 144,000 are strictly those who worshiped on the Sabbath. And yet, even within the church, you've got disagreement. Those from an amillennial perspective see this really as being a symbolic reference to the entire church. And those of that amillennial perspective would not differentiate between the 144,000 in the first part of chapter 7 and the the innumerable multitude mentioned in the second part of chapter 7. And so they make the argument that this is really the same group of people, this is the church, this is the spiritual Israel of God, and... um, what you're seeing is John is being shown this group from two different vantage points. To which I would simply say, I believe that's, in, that's really not plausible because very specific 
Israelite Jewish terms are used to describe this 144,000, this group in the first eight verses, specific even uh, to mention the tribes of Israel. And then notice the multitude is a, a Gentile multitude, predominantly Gentile, made up of people from every tribe, every nation represented. And so I believe it's obvious in the text, just a simple straightforward reading of the text, to identify these as being two different groups of people. But what you do see happening here ultimately is the fulfillment of the mission of God. That, of course, is made possible through Jesus. And we'll talk about that in just a few minutes. Uh, Danny Aiken says to wrestle over this, who these are, is really to miss the fact that Jew and Gentile alike will be gathered around the throne and the Lamb in heaven and the focus of the text is the worship of the Lamb. By the way, that's the main emphasis of Revelation. Revelation is not intended to make us a bunch of, you know, speculative, you know, argumentative people over the finer points of prophecy and that kind of thing. But really, it's, it's intended to stoke worship in my heart and life and to provoke mission as a witness for Jesus. So really, this is one of the greatest missionary texts in all of the Bible. One of the greatest passages in the Bible to encourage a passionate, radical, sacrificial missionary agenda. And what does the heart of our God, what is his heart, but that people come to know him? And why did God initially make a covenant with Abraham and Israel in the Old Testament to begin with? It was to bring blessing to the whole world through Abraham's seed. And we know that's fulfilled in Jesus Christ and yet there still is a future fulfillment to that as it relates to the future kingdom of Jesus uh, through which blessing will be realized all throughout the world as Jesus Christ comes to rule and to reign and to establish his kingdom. So I'm of the conviction that these 144,000 in verses 1 through 8 are Jewish. And I believe they serve a very specific purpose in the tribulation period and that purpose will involve an evangelistic harvest, the likes of which the world has never seen. And there seems to be a connection between the 144,000 who were described with that great multitude that John sees in heaven around the throne. There's a direct correlation here. And so really, this interlude of chapter 7 is a wonderful reminder that even in the midst of judgment, our God remembers mercy. And aren't you grateful for that? Now, I've, I told you last week, I, nobody can outline better than Adrian Rogers. And so sometimes if you find a bullet that, sh that fits your gun, you ought to just shoot it. <laughs> and so uh, Adrian Rogers, nobody can say it better than he does uh, in his book, Unveiling the End Times in Our Time. Uh, he says there are really three overarching principles from this seventh chapter. And the first principle, there is no promise too hard for God to keep. And then there's no person too hard for God to save. <laughs> and the third principle he mentions, ultimately, there is no problem too hard for God to solve. Now, I spent some time last week with this first principle, there is no promise too hard for God to keep. And, and, and honestly, this is sort of just filling in some details as to why I personally believe these 144,000 are Jewish, Again, a straightforward reading of the text lends itself to that position. But if we go all the way back to the Old Testament, there are some very specific promises that God made to Israel, which he intends to keep. God will not go back on his word. And I don't want to belabor the point. We spent sufficient time last Wednesday night looking at these various covenants. Don't write that down in the blanks there because I've got some others under that principle number one. But this is what I looked at just last week to try to fill in some details what are those promises that God made in the Old Testament? Well, to begin with, Genesis chapter 12, we find the Abrahamic covenant. Where the call of God comes to Abram and Ur of the Chaldees, God is very clear. God has a purpose in mind. God, in his grace, appears to Abram and, and establishes a covenant with him. And the terms of that covenant are specified and with greater detail in chapter 15 as the, that covenant is Cut. The cutting of a covenant happens in chapter 15 involving blood and 
sacrifice and God unconditionally promising that he's going to bring blessing to the world through Abraham's descendant. Abraham's going to have a son, a son of promise. God has told Abraham what land is going to be given to him. And really the borders of the land promise from the Nile River in Egypt all the way to the Euphrates River in present-day Iraq. Let me tell you something. Do you know that even at the zenith of Israel's power under Solomon in its heyday, it never fully occupied that land territory that had been promised to Abraham? So that tells me that there's coming a point yet future when there's going to be a kingdom in which that promise is going to be kept. And it's the kingdom of Jesus. David's greater son. So the Abrahamic promise, uh, promise or covenant in specific terms, God tells Abraham that he's going to bring blessing to the world through his seed. This covenant is confirmed with Abraham's son Isaac, Isaac's son Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel. He has 12 sons, 12 tribes of Israel. For 400 years, Israel's in bondage to the Egyptians only to be delivered by God who raised up Moses for the task. And upon leading God's people out of their Egyptian bondage, God reveals his law to Moses and through Moses at Mount Sinai. And that covenant is reaffirmed, the Mosaic covenant. And really the promise is that Israel would be given the land. They would be led into the land that had been sworn to their forefathers. So now think about this. Really the seedbed of, of all prophecy, going back to Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman who's going to crush the head of the serpent, the covenant that God's established with Abraham involves three major components. Seed, soil, Salvation. Seed, soil, salvation. And so these other covenants that you see in the Old Testament, whether it be the Mosaic covenant at the base of Mount Sinai or the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel chapter 7, the New Covenant, Jeremiah chapter 31, each of these deal with one of those three components in that initial promise that God makes to Abraham. For example, the, the land, the soil, this is the major emphasis, really, the Mosaic Covenant. God's blessing to give Israel the land. The Davidic Covenant deals with, ultimately, the seed promise. Matthew chapter 1 says that Jesus is both the seed of Abraham and the seed of David, the promised seed, <laughs> through whom blessing is going to come to the entire world. And ultimately, that's the New Covenant the new covenant deals with the salvation blessing that was initially promised to Abraham where God's going to bring salvation blessing to the whole world through Abraham's descendants. So when God chooses Abraham and God chooses Israel in the Old Testament, it's not just to bring blessing to them for their sake, but it's to use them as an instrument through whom God is going to bring worldwide blessing. And that worldwide blessing ultimately is fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. Now you think about the new covenant and what the new covenant is all about. It's all about a redeemed heart, God giving his people an obedient heart. What good would it be if his people are in the land with David's greater son as their king, but his kingdom is a rebellious kingdom? There'd be nothing different than what we're experiencing now as a rebellious United States. We'd still have the same old problems, wouldn't we? But no, the, the perfect kingdom that's been promised with the perfect king made up of perfect men and women who've been perfected by that king, I'm telling you, that's what the new covenant ultimately points to, where God's going to give his people a new heart. They're going to obey him from the heart. He's going to write his laws upon their heart. He's going to put his spirit on the inside of them. And that's what the new covenant is all about. Now, obviously, believers today, we enjoy all of these promises as a result of the new covenant in Christ's blood. And there's a sense in which, spiritually, we are a part of the Israel of God. We've been grafted in. Mystery of mysteries, we who were Gentiles have been grafted into Israel through Jesus the Messiah. And we're living at a unique period of history, uh, the age of the church, 
where because Israel's in disobedience, their eyes have been blinded to who the Messiah is. That does not thwart the redemptive plan of God because God's building his church. But not for one second does that mean that God will not honor his initial promises and keep those promises to Abraham. And all of those promises ultimately find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And there's a, f- a future fulfillment in Christ, specifically the kingdom of Jesus Christ, the millennial kingdom. Now you say, okay, well, why are you telling us all of that? Because I think it'll really help you understand why I believe these 144,000 in Revelation 7 are indeed 144,000 from Israel, ethnic Israel, who will serve a very specific purpose in the tribulation period. And what's that purpose ultimately? It's to be a witness to the nations during the darkest period in human history. The very thing that God wanted Israel to be in the Old Testament, a light to the nations, (laughs) they're going to get a second chance at that. After the rapture of the church, during a very difficult, dark period. Listen to this. John MacArthur says it this way. He says, this critical passage reinforces the biblical truth that God is not through with the nation of Israel. But you know that from Romans 9, 10, and 11. Paul's clear in Romans that, that God's not through with Israel. And yet, though Israel failed in its mission to be a witness in the Old Testament, that will not be the case in the future. From the Jewish nation will come the greatest missionary force the world has ever known. And their result, or the result of their effort, will be a redeemed Israel as promised by God and innumerable redeemed Gentiles. So here here it is. The Abrahamic covenant speaks of blessing and salvation promised to the Gentiles. God intended to bring salvation blessing to all families of the earth. From the beginning, God chose Israel to be a channel through which blessing would flow to the world. You see this all throughout the Old Testament, not the least of which is Psalm 67. Listen to this. May God be gracious to us, bless us, make his face shine upon us, that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among the nations. So the psalmist is praying on behalf of God's people here, Israel, the Old Testament, let let, let the light of your countenance smile upon us so that we can be your witnesses among the nations. Let all peoples praise you, O God. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let the people praise you. The earth has yielded its increase, God. Our God shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. Now, we know Israel failed in that mission, but that does not mean God has discarded Israel. The church is fulfilling that mission in this age, and yet in the future, God has a future in mind for Israel. Israel will turn to the Lord in repentance in the tribulation period. It's the time of Jacob's trouble. It's the time in which their eyes are open to the truth of who the Messiah is. And this will be fulfillment of Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, where the scripture says, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced. They will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. They will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. And in that day, a fountain will be opened up for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And again, Paul devotes three chapters to this very subject, Romans 9, 10, and 11. God has not abandoned Israel. God has not discarded Israel. But Paul says in Romans 11, 26, and so all Israel will be saved just as it's written, the deliverer will come from Zion and he will remove ungodliness from Jacob. Leading the way in a revival among the Jews in that tribulation period will be these 144,000 whom I believe God reserves as special evangelists both to the Israelites as well as to the Gentile nations. Now, there's no promise too hard for our God that he can't keep. You know that, right? Even when it looks like all the odds are stacked against 
God from being able to honor his promise. Let me tell you, God will keep his word. God will honor his promise. He never writes a check that he can't cash. He never, it never bounces. <laughs> so now, just specifically dealing with these 144,000, if you look there in, in uh, verses 1 through 8, Let's read the text together. John says, After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on the earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees, until we've sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed. 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben. 12,000 from the tribe of Gad. 12,000 from the tribe of Asher. 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali. 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh. 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. Now, really in Revelation, there are two passages where these 144,000 are mentioned. You've got this passage here that we've just read but also chapter 14, all right? So chapter 7 presents us with the identity of the 144,000. Chapter 14 pictures them toward the end of the tribulation. In fact, why don't you go there and let's just read a few verses from the first part of chapter 14. John says, I looked and behold on Mount Zion stood the Lamb and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of a loud thunder. And the voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures, before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. Now when you lay these two passages side by side, there are several characteristics that really provide you with some keen insight as to who they are and what they will do. Notice that passage in chapter 14 says that they had been purchased or redeemed from the earth. And that word redeemed means to, to pay a price for something. We know it's the blood of Christ that had purchased these who were the servants of God. You go back to chapter 7, notice that they're described as being servants of God. The word that's used there is a word that really means slaves for a specific task. The idea is that these have been purchased for a very specific purpose. They now belong to the Lord as his own possession. That's what that means. And so they're purchased. That's the first blank there. But then notice how they're also prepared. Verses 3 and 4 uh, in chapter 7 says that the 144,000 are chosen for service and they're given the seal of God. Now notice the command is given to these angels to hold back uh, really the elements. It's, it's, it's an intermission of sort. Uh, judgment is not going to consume the earth until these are sealed. Uh, so, so they're being prepared for this very specific task. Which by the way, you know the theme of God sealing his servants is a frequent theme that you find all throughout the scriptures? I mean, before God destroyed the world in the flood, uh, he put Noah and his family in the ark, shut them in, and the Bible says that he sealed the ark. They were protected within the ark. The same waters that drowned that world in Noah's day were the same waters of judgment that also lifted the ark to safety for Noah and his family. 
So even in the midst of judgment, God is merciful and gracious. Uh, in the Exodus, the Israelites who had the blood of the Passover lamb applied to their doorpost, they were safe within the confines of their home inasmuch as the blood of that lamb had been applied to the doorpost. So there's very sense in which they're safely sealed within their homes as the destroying angel passes through the land that night in judgment and the firstborn are taken. Joshua's conquest of Jericho, the scripture says that Rahab and her family were spared from destruction and what was the sign of her being safely sealed within her home on the wall was a scarlet thread let down out of her window which let General Joshua know, y'all, spare that place. The scarlet thread, the, the red color of blood in the window spares the one who is within the house. Ezekiel 9, uh, before the destruction of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. by the Babylonians, uh, the prophet Ezekiel speaks of a special sealing of God's people during the destruction of the city. Those, um, in fact, the Lord says, pass through the city, through Jerusalem, put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations committed within it. Touch no one on whom is the mark. The idea is judgment will come to those who have disobeyed God, who are lawbreakers, who are not trusting in him, and those who grieve over the sins of God's people, those who are the true people of God in the city. There's, there's a sealing that's happened. There's a protective seal that's placed upon them spiritually and they're spared from judgment. Now, I would imagine that the most familiar mark that you're aware of as far as Revelation is concerned is the mark of the beast in chapter 13. And yet, during this same time frame, the Lord will identify his people by placing a seal of ownership on their foreheads. Go over to chapter 14, you read all of that, you can see that uh, read that in your own time. But you see, here's what's interesting. Both here in chapter 7 as well as chapter 13, there are two different Greek words used to distinguish these marks. The mark that God places on these 144,000, this is totally different than the mark that Antichrist is going to put on his followers. The word used in chapter 13 of Antichrist, it's, it's a, more like a brand or a tattoo. But the word that's used here in, in Revelation 7, I believe that it's a literal mark, but I also believe that there's something spiritual that's going on here because this is the same word that's often used throughout the New Testament to describe the way that God's people are sealed with the Holy Spirit. By the way, do you know that you've been sealed as a believer? <laughs> you've been sealed. Now, I don't see anything on your foreheads tonight as I'm looking out over the congregation. But you've been sealed nonetheless. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21, it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and has put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. The same language that John is using here in chapter 7 to describe these 144,000. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who's the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Ephesians 4.30, grieve not the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Now, folks, you don't have to fear the coming wrath of God upon an unbelieving world because you have been sealed by the precious spirit of the living God. And so the sealing then of God's servants, this implies divine ownership. So where you have the mark of the beast described on into chapter 13, this is the devil's attempt to try to mimic God. That's why Luther called him the great ape of God. He has no original ideas. The only thing that the enemy can do is take something good that God has made and twist it and pervert it to his own twisted, perverted ends. And so the mark of the beast is going to just simply be a way in which the enemy is, is going to try to mark for himself those who were his 
in competition, mimicking, albeit in a futile way, worthless way, the way in which believers have been sealed by God's protective presence. And so that means that this seal also implies protection. It's God's pledge of security for these 144,000. They're sealed before the angels bring judgment on the earth. They're protected from the wrath of God. And some would say, well, does this mean they're, they're, they're protected from all harm during the during the tribulation period? Well, many go to that passage in chapter 14, which is toward the end of the tribulation, and see them standing on Mount Zion, which is figurative of Jerusalem, and see them as having been preserved through the entire tribulation period for the sake of that witness that God wants to be among the nations during that period of time. And whether that's true or not, I don't know. But the bottom line is, They're sealed by God, and that means they're in God's hands no matter what happens to them in this life. No matter, listen to me, no matter if it's persecution that takes me out of here or cancer that takes me out of here or COVID that takes me out of here, I've been sealed. My eternity is secure. I'm safe in the protective hands of my God. I don't have to fear what can happen in this life because I've been given eternal life, and that's not something that I will ever lose. Purity is something else that's implied, I think, with this ceiling of these 144,000. You get on into chapter 14. Again, we read it. It says that they're chaste. They've not been in sexual contact with women. That's what a straightforward reading of chapter 14 says. Those who would interpret this figuratively say, well, it means that they're spiritually undefiled and pure. They're separated from the pollution of this world. But again, I think that if you just apply the simple, straightforward reading of Scripture, it says that they're male, celibate servants of God. And in light of all that's going to be happening in the tribulation period, I believe that these are called from God, by God, to abstain from normal married life and devote themselves entirely to the Lord's service. It's what the Apostle Paul describes in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. By the way, think of these 144,000 as being 144,000 Apostle Pauls to the nations in the tribulation period. (laughs) Imagine the Apostle Paul and the fruit of his three missionary journeys. The churches that were planted, the people that that came into the kingdom of God as a result of his efforts, evangelistic efforts. Imagine that. 144,000 times over. It's kind of what you see happening here. And they're persistent. They persevere in their service for the Lord even under the most severe of circumstances. During the tribulation period, they, chapter 14 says that they constantly follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Chapter 14, verse 4. The idea is they're persistent in their obedience, living out the call of God on their lives. Which, by the way, don't you think that that ought to be said of my life and your life too, as a believer in Jesus? I want to be persistent in my obedience. I want to follow the Lamb of God wherever He leads. Whatever it is that He impresses upon my heart to do, whatever calling it is that He places upon my life, obedience to His commands, I want to be persistent. And ultimately, I think the thing to keep in mind is that these are 144,000 preachers chosen for a specific purpose that involves being witnesses to the nations. They fearlessly proclaim the gospel. The thing is, you know the tribulation is a period of judgment, but you can't overlook the fact that it will also be a time where multitudes and multitudes of people are going to be saved. And so there appears to be this cause and effect relationship in chapter 7 between the 144,000 and then that innumerable crowd of Gentile believers there in the second part of the chapter. And I believe that the nations are the fruit of their labors as as a result of their witness, which will bring about the salvation of multitudes. And again, this is fulfillment of prophecy because Isaiah 11 says that in that day, the nations will resort to the root of Jesse who will stand as a signal for the peoples and his resting place will be glorious. 
that's fulfilled in Jesus and those whom Jesus raises up to be his witnesses. So think of God using these 144,000 to declare the gospel throughout the world in a time of unparalleled judgment, which by the way, Jesus said that that would be the case, but Matthew 24, verse 14, he said, the gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. Chuck Swindoll says it this way, he says, these 144,000 Hebrews will serve as faithful, courageous, diligent witnesses for Christ during the darkest period of earth's history. God will miraculously preserve them from harm during the tribulation and will use them to fulfill the ancient Old Testament calling of the Hebrew people to be God's witnesses among the nations. God's plan for Israel was always for the people to serve as the light of truth to the Gentiles. And during the tribulation, they will serve as Christ's servants who finally fulfill this mission. This believing remnant from ethnic Israel not only will be sealed for power and protection, but will survive the tribulation period and become the first fruits of the nation of Israel when it's restored to the land during the coming millennial kingdom. So here's the principle, folks. There's no promise too hard that our God can't keep. He will keep his promises. Now, the second principle. There's no person too hard for God to save. <laughs> Eddie, you know all about that, don't you, brother? <laughs> so God sees this multitude of people gathered around the throne, and, and he's asked by one of the elders. Remember the 24 elders, who I believe is representative of Old Testament saints and the New Testament church. The New Testament church that's already in heaven because the rapture will have happened prior to this point. But John is asked this question by one of the elders, who are these? Where do they come from? <laughs> this crowd that you see all around, the, who are they? Where do they come from? Now, this is not a question asked out of ignorance on the part of this elder, but it's a question asked for the sake of instruction. Uh, whenever you're teaching your children something, did you ever just ask them questions to drive home a point? Like Christmas? That scene out of the Christmas story, you know what I'm talking about? After the presents have been opened and the dad and the mom are sitting there on the couch and the little boy is all disappointed because he's opened up everything but he didn't get what he wanted which was that Red Ryder BB gun because he'd shoot his eye out. But his dad's there on the couch and after it's all said and done, the presents have been opened, he asks a question. What is that over there behind the desk? What's in the corner? He's asking a question. Now, he knows exactly what it is, but he's, he's wanting his son to learn something, to find something. That's kind of what's happening here in this passage. There's a question being asked of John, who are these? What's John's response? He says, well, you know. <laughs> I don't know who they are, but you know. And then the elder tells John down in verse 14, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. In other words, this multitude is made up of men and women who've come to Christ during the tribulation. And I believe these are the evangelistic fruits of the 144,000 of Israel. Many in that number, in that camp, there probably was someone saying, that ah, they never could be saved. You got people who, throughout all their lifetime and their ancestral heritage, they've been in bondage to Buddhism and Hinduism, Islam, communism, socialism, all of these isms, all that they've ever known, <laughs> never having been able to hear and understand the glorious gospel of Christ. But you see, the tribulation period is going to be a period of time, unparalleled judgment on the planet People are going to be asking questions, what in the world's going on? God's going to preserve these 144,000 as witnesses. And men and women, there will be people saved during that time frame. Perhaps one of the greatest evangelistic harvests that the world has ever seen. Even under such dark days. So look at the language that John uses to describe these 144,000. Notice how he says that they're ethnically diverse. 
Here's a multitude no one could number from every nation, all tribes, peoples, languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. (laughs) So John sees the fulfillment of the promise that God made to Abraham. It's the nations of the earth who've experienced the blessing of Abraham's seed. This is the fulfillment of the Great Commission. Here's people from every nation, every language represented. And what man's world so desperately tries to achieve through diversity and inclusion seminars, only Jesus is able to deliver. Huh? See, the world wants diversity. The world wants it, but the world can't have it on the world's terms. Marxism and classism... And all of this can't deliver it. The result of all of that is just pitting people against each other, whether it be socioeconomic class or skin color, as we see it happening throughout so much of the Western world. But you don't know what brings people together, whether they're white, whether they're black, whether they're red, whether they're brown, whether they're yellow. It's the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's only in Jesus Christ that people are brought together at the table in fellowship. They're brought here around the throne. So they're ethnically diverse. They're spiritually pure. Verse 9 says the multitude is clothed in white robes. That's a fitting symbol of moral purity. Speaks of the forgiveness of sin, the imputation of Christ's righteousness. It's not their own righteousness with which they're clothed. It's just like us. We're clothed with the righteousness of Christ. That's true of every believer, no matter who you are. It's the benefit of grace. God's grace in your life means that you've been given the righteousness of Christ. And then notice how they're victoriously confident. John sees that they've got palm branches in their hands. It speaks of fellowship in the presence of God. Palm branches all throughout Scripture. This is often associated with celebration, joy. Palm branches were especially prominent in the Feast of the Tabernacles there in the Old Testament which was the celebration of God's provision for Israel during their long wanderings throughout the wilderness during those years. It also calls to mind the way that Jesus was welcomed into the city of Jerusalem, you know, with palm branches. Hosanna, Hosanna, the son of David, the king, he's come. So here you have these before the throne of God, clothed in white, the righteousness of Christ. They've got palm branches, which means they've entered into the victory of Christ. This is God's provision on their behalf. And then notice they're worshipfully engaged. Verse 10, they're crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and unto the Lamb. Here they are engaged in worship. There are no back row Baptists here, disengaged. They're all engaged, actively worshiping joining in song with the angels and the elders and the four living creatures. And verse 12 says that they declare a sevenfold anthem of praise sandwiched in between two amens. So they're engaged in worship. So what you've got here, folks, is an interlude of mercy. And it's a wonderful reminder here that even in the midst of his judgment, the breaking of these seals, the sixth, the seventh seal, In between, God is merciful. God is faithful to save those who come to Christ. And regardless of what your interpretation is of this passage, whether you're premillennial in your perspective or whether you're amillennial, I can have fellowship with my amillennial brothers and sisters who see things a little bit differently than I do. We can agree on the fact that we're saved through Jesus and we win in the end. So there's no promise too hard for God to keep, no person too hard for God to save. And then one last thing, and I'll finish with this. Ultimately, there's no problem too hard for God to solve. Verse 15 says that they're before the throne of God. They serve him day and night in his temple. This innumerable multitude. 
And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So here you have this elder who's telling John that all the problems that these men and women had known during their lifetimes, especially under the tyranny of Antichrist and his system, all of that had vanished in the light of God's grace. These coming out of the great tribulation later on in the book of Revelation, we're going to find out they're going to be martyred for the sake of their testimony, even beheaded for the sake of their testimony. But no matter the persecution that comes their way, no matter the problems and the pain and the suffering that comes their way, they're more than conquerors through Jesus who loves them. So notice God's protective presence that's mentioned there in verse 15. They're before the throne of God. They serve him day and night in his temple. And I love this. The one who sits on the throne shelters them with his own presence. (laughs) Isn't that just a wonderful thought? No more will they be subject to the elements of a hostile, fallen world. And then God's perfect provision. In his presence, there's no more pain, no more disappointment, no more fatigue, no more frustration. Physically, they're rejuvenated. Mentally, they're relieved. Spiritually, they're at rest. They're safe and secure. They're saved and they're satisfied. The lamb who suffered and died for their sins is also the shepherd who's leading them to springs of living water. And then ultimately, God's precious promise. Verse 17 says they've been given this promise. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. You know, in ancient times, people kept these little glass bottles that were called lacrimatories, which were basically bottles in which tears were collected for the sake of grieving, the grief process. The tears of mourners were often collected, and those little lacrimatory bottles were placed on the graves and in the tombs of departed loved ones. If you want a picture of one from antiquity, right there you have it. That dates back to the first century, according to the source where I found that. But, but think about it, that you had the mourners, you had these who were grieving, they would take these tear bottles, tears that they had cried over the loss of some loved one, they would take these little tear bottles and put them on the graves or in the tombs or the catacombs of those that they had lost. It predates the first century, it goes all the way back even into the ancient world, even the world of the Old Testament. David had something to say about this in Psalm 56 verse 8 when he said, uh, You put my tears into your bottle, O Lord. Are they not in your book? The idea is David had shed tears of sorrow and grief and pain and frustration and disappointment. And when he experienced all of those emotions, he took it to God in prayer and there were rivers of tears that streamed from his face. And David says, God, you know every single tear. You put them in your bottle. They're not wasted. And the principle of that is is this, God knows every detail of my life. Every ounce of pain and hurt and sadness, every tear that you have shed as a believer, every pain, every hurt, every setback you've experienced in your life. Well, there are a lot of people crying. You know what? We may, perhaps more so than any other time in our lives, found ourselves lately crying rivers of tears. In my lifetime, I, you know, I've never seen such a difficult time. I've pa- pastored now for 20 years, but I've never seen such a terrible time, hard time as far as ministry is concerned. In a time when people seem at times so callous and indifferent, and yet a time in which Our loved ones were concerned for their physical well-being and their safety and their health and all of that. Maybe some of you have cried some tears lately over the spiritual condition of someone you love. Tears of frustration 
of trying to do the right thing only to be criticized and rejected for it. But let me tell you something. For every tear that you have shed, God's keeping it in a bottle. Which means it's not wasted. And there's coming a day when we're going to gather around his throne and the Lamb will wipe away every tear from our eyes. And this promise is so precious. Here it's applied to these tribulation saints. But in chapter 21, this is repeated, and it's true for every child of God. No matter when you come to faith in Jesus or when you die and you depart to be with Jesus or whether the rapture happens and takes you that way, Revelation 21 says that at the end of all things, he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne has said, Behold, I am making all things new. And that's the precious promise that we have. So, folks, let me tell you something. This interlude in chapter 7, God means for it to be a beacon of hope in your soul as a believer. An incentive for you not to cave in to the despair of this world. Don't buy into the fear that the enemy wants you to buy into. Don't cave in to the fear. Don't believe that all hope is lost. Don't go through your days under a cloud of depression and disappointment, you've got this precious promise that the time is coming when God is going to wipe away every tear from your eyes and the one who's seated on the throne is making all things new. Let's stand for prayer tonight. Well, it's an encouraging promise, isn't it? Maybe you know someone you work with or your neighbor someone in your family who doesn't know the Lord. You know, God wants you to be a witness, a testimony. I pray that this great passage would serve as a real impetus for evangelism and mission, a missionary incentive. (laughs) The nations are the inheritance of our God. The Lord Jesus, thank you, Lord, for your word tonight. And, Lord, there's so much that we don't understand. And, God, we're so dependent upon your spirit to lead us into truth. But, Lord, I believe the principles, no matter the way that a person would interpret these difficult passages, especially as it relates to end-time prophecy, Lord, the overarching principles remain You are a promise-keeping God, and there's no promise too hard that you won't keep, can't keep. There's no person too hard that you can't save. And ultimately, Lord, there's no problem too big that you can't solve. And thank you for these precious, precious principles. May they encourage us as we seek to live and make disciples and shepherd our families and steward the time and the resources that you've given to us in these days. Lord, we pray for those who are grieving tonight. We pray for those who are sorrowful tonight. Lord, I pray those in our church who have loved ones who are sick, grieving. Lord, would you comfort them with your own special presence. And Lord, the cry of our heart is, even so come Lord Jesus. Maranatha. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.